feel a little like I'm at the kindergarten table here. So, a little awkward. But our happiness is not dependent upon conditions, right? So, well, those of you who, who keep track of dates and such may uh, know today that, that today is the 4th of July, Independence Day. So, um, uh, most Americans, I'd like to think at least, recognize that uh, this is the day that uh, the colonists in colonial times sent uh, King George a Dear John letter. So, basically, there was a, a list of uh, things that we didn't like about what the English were doing in regard to the colonies and uh, some very idealistic statements about the, the rights of uh, all human beings, oh, um, men, all men being created <laughs> equal. We've been working on that, that second part, that other part, and, uh, getting everybody in there. But um, despite our many uh, flaws and failings, this was uh, a powerful act and has, in many ways, has changed the history of what was going on in North America, but in many ways changed history and the rest of the world too, because some of these uh, ideas that were present in the Declaration of Independence were picked up uh, in other cultures and ha have become part of their own development and evolution. So, powerful day, 4th of July, Independence Day. I often think of the, the Buddha's refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta where he's talking about um, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Of course, that's a, a different kind of independence. I remember Ruth Dennison once giving a Dharma talk and she was talking about how we in our search for happiness and, and well-being really go to extreme measures sometimes with the, the getting and the doing. I can remember her telling a story about being on a holiday, I think it was actually this holiday, and driving down a road and seeing somebody driving a big RV, you know, a big recreational vehicle, and behind the RV was a trailer with a boat. And behind the trailer with the boat was another trailer that had some uh, 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 motorbikes on it. And on the back of that, there was like a rack for bikes. <laughs> and she said, wow, you know, they were, they were really looking. They were really looking for enjoyment and recreation, what, what would make them happy. And that's often how we frame it, of course. But the Buddha had uh, a different idea about what might lead to happiness because he had a different idea about what led to its opposite, unhappiness. So if you know the basic framework of the Buddha's teachings, then you may recognize his view and his opinion expressed uh, 
in the Four Noble Truths that basically the reason that we're not happy is that we suffer from delusion, which is expressed as craving. So craving is often pointed to as uh, the suffering piece of this, but it's even a manifestation of the deeper issue, which is the deeper issue of delusion. So, you know, think about how we commonly use the word delusion if we're talking about a person who's deluded. And I say, oh, that guy's completely deluded or he's completely delusional. You know, you might be meaning it in a kind of uh, psychological sense, but, you know, sometimes we use that word like, oh, that person just like is not not connected, they're just not in touch with what's going on. They like, you know, have all these ideas that are so ungrounded and are so at variance to uh, what's actually happening that it's just really, it's really hard to connect because they're not seeing things. So here in the States right now, we're having this, you know, these big conversations uh, about delusion and facts and you know, what's true and all the rest of that. And does it even matter anymore uh, what's true? How can you know truth? Is it all relative? It, is it just view? Is it just perspective? Is it, you know, just different angles on the same thing? Or is it just, is it even a useful idea anymore? Or is it all marketing? Is it all manipulation? So we have our own collective struggles with delusion as well as the individual ones. Since we all suffer from this fundamental kind of delusion that the Buddha points to. So in the Buddha's understanding, it's not that we, you know, don't know some things. It's that, it's more than that, it's that we actually misunderstand things. We actually misunderstand how things are. We think things are a, a way that it really isn't. And because we think things are a certain way, we act on that set of assumptions and operate from it and do all kinds of things that don't actually lead us in the direction of happiness and well-being. So, In a sense, you could say that if we cure the delusion, if we address the delusion, then awakening happens all on its own. It's not something that we need to manufacture. And with awakening or with sustained clear seeing, happiness arises, at least in part because we cease doing things that cause unhappiness that cause suffering to ourselves and others. We develop a more skilled and wise relationship to what we, what we experience. So this process of becoming undiluted is one way to think of the Buddha's path. 
So you could say it, it's a whole way of stabilizing the mind in what is wholesome and clarifying and conducive to happiness and well-being in order to give the heart-mind a chance to see for itself what's liberating and what isn't. And you may have noticed in um, Buddhist circles, there's often the use of this particular word, skillful. And I find that very interesting and significant that the word skillful is used more often than, for instance, good or bad. You know, we, good or bad. Skillful is a word that has a more neutral tone or valence to it, right? It's not a question of whether something is good or bad. It's a question of whether the heart-mind is relating to it with wisdom, whether the actions of body, speech, and mind that are coming forth are actually functional or dysfunctional, you could say. So skillful is what actually works in terms of moving towards the desired result. So if craving born of ignorance is actually the problem, then the skillful approach to cl- is clarifying the ignorance and clearing up the misapprehension. If you clear things up, you come to understanding, thus ending the delusion that causes suffering. But the thing about delusion is that it's a tricky kind of thing, right? Seeing your own delusion is a little directly is a little bit like trying to see the back of your head, right? I can remember when I was a a kid going uh, down to the basement of the school that I attended. I don't know, I was maybe second grade or something. And there was a a vision test. They were giving you a vision test. At this time it was like, you know, this chart of letters. You know, they started with the big one on the top and it was an E. You know, and then they had like subsequent lines of different mixed letters and they got smaller and smaller. And the way you would take the test is that you would actually have to read the letters. So being deluded about the real purpose of the activity (laughs) and knowing that in my family you wouldn't want to go home and say you failed a test. And having a fairly good short-term memory at that age, I basically like listened to the other kids as they were going through the chart. And so by the time it was my turn, I could, you know, fake it. You know, I could do all the lines. And I was really hard-pressed to see the big E. That's how bad my vision was, right? So, you know, there was like a deluded lens on this whole activity for me because I didn't understand, you know, what the point of it was. And so I was participating uh, in it to try to, you know, make it work within a certain set of terms and ideas I had about it that were completely wrong. 
completely wrong. So it wasn't until I was actually in fifth grade where the teacher finally figured out that like this kid, <laughs> this kid can't see and told my parents he should get her eyes checked. And uh, you know, they found out that my uncorrected vision was like legally blind. <laughs> <laughs> that you know something could actually actually be done. Um, yeah, that trees actually had individual leaves, and they weren't just like a green blob, you know. <laughs> but th- this is the way uh, delusion is, right? As far as you know, you're going great because there's no other thing to compare it against, right? You haven't had the experience of actually putting on. Uh, you know, of correcting the vision that's present there. So, if we're going to say what some of the primary distortions are, the primary delusions are, you would basically, you could basically say them as an inversion of the three characteristics. So the Buddha says, well, um, delusion uh, causes us to see what is impermanent as permanent. Causes us to see what's impermanent as permanent. Whether that means, uh, you know, I'll I'll always be young and young and fit, or whether that means um, this mind state that is happening now will always be like this, or um, all kinds of things. We put this permanence on top of it. A second thing is this delusion causes us to view what is incapable of providing lasting satisfaction as being able to do so. So to go back to our opening story of the RV and the boat and the, the motorbikes and the bikes, well, somebody there had a, had a little bit of idea that any one of those things... Uh, might not actually be enough to really provide what they were looking for on a vacation. And so you, you see, see them energetically engaged with, you know, the multiplication of possibilities to provide that sustained kind of satisfaction when you get to the lake. And the third thing is, this delusion causes us to personalize experiences, to regard them as belonging to or relating to a standalone self which is at the center of things. I mean, let, let's face it, very often, you know, we really do feel like it's being done to us or it's all happening to us or it's all about us or it's these things that uh, arise in experience that sort of we're in, in the middle of it and it's coming at us or it's a feature of us or it's a, yeah, the self, the self idea, all tangled up in all of it. So delusion causes us to see things in these three distorted ways and then to act in ways that unconsciously implement this distorted view. So for the first distortion, for instance, we try to get impermanent contingent things to be a certain way and keep them that way. 
Secondly, we try to get things which are necessarily changing to make us perfectly happy and satisfied and to keep it that way. And thirdly, we put our self-sense and esteem at the center of everything we experience and struggle to protect and enhance this self-view. So this is the basic view from which an untrained mind operates. So I want to say some things so you don't misunderstand the perspective that I'm offering. So, you know, you hear these teachings about, well, you know, nothing provides lasting satisfaction. Uh, you know, th- um, things, things are uh, impermanent. Um, you know, it's not really uh, uh, created by a self or re- doesn't really relate back to the self. You could hear this as, as me or these teachings saying that there's no possibility of influence or agency in any kind of way in life. This is often a question that comes up for people. It's like, well, if that's all true, you know, if it's all impermanent and none of it's capable of providing lasting satisfaction and, you know, there's no, like, you know, no self that's permanent that's in the middle of it that it relates back to. So what does that mean? You just, and this is often said with a certain degree of (laughs) bitterness, although occasionally hope. Uh, Oh, so what does that mean? You know, you should just sit back and just like let everything happen to you. And it's like, you know, just be a blob and let it all roll over you. So that would be wrong view. So it would be wrong view because how the mind, the heart mind, is able to be present, what resources it can bring to the present moment, maximizes the amount of freedom that is present at that point. So if there is mindfulness, if there is clarity of mind, if there is wisdom, if there is equanimity, the mind can act in the present with the future in mind, seeing that, for instance, this thing is uh, preferable to this thing, this is skillful, this is not skillful, this would be good to do, this would be good to forego. It can act in the present with thought of the future. And in fact, that's wisdom, right? That's skillful means, it's skillful action. But what it means is that we should not, these teachings mean, is we should not be confused at the point of arising experience about how much control we have right there, right at the mouth of the stream, as reality bubbles into existence. Right there, right at that point, it's determined by causes and conditions. How it's met, that's where there's influence. So a way to put it is, in in the Buddha's teachings, in the immediate sense of what arises in the immediate, often there's little or no control. But there's influence about what comes next, dependent on how the moment is met. And ultimately, the Buddha would say, 
ultimately you have control over the arc of your development, including enough control to orient the whole body-mind process towards complete liberation, which is within the possible range of human beings. But not to get confused about where you have control and where you have influence and where you don't. And that's these questions of span of control um, are a fundamental human confusion. And the Buddha talks about this, you know, one of his uh, better known quotes is, talks about beings wanting happiness while doing the very things that lead to suffering. You know? Our tendency to oversteer, try to oversteer uh, in regard to immediate experience. You ever have the experience of driving your car and uh, on a slippery road, you know, snowy, icy road, and it starts to go into a skid? You know, what's the what's the instruction for driving with a skid? You know, because you might think it's just to really slam on the brakes, right? Mm, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So there's, there's skillful means involved in le- learning how to meet the present moment, how to, how to work with the immediate experience that is sometimes quite counterintuitive because our organic, biologically conditioned tendency of mind is if it's unpleasant, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get it away from me. Get me away from it. Or if it's something that's pleasant, it's, oh, nice, nice, nice. Let me see, let me get it, let me hold it, let me expand it, let me keep it. Or if it's more neutral in terms of Vedna, it's often like, okay, nothing going on here. Let me, let me either look for a problem or find something interesting, a kind of disconnection to it all. So, you know, if, if it's true that, uh, you know, un, uh, a vehicle which is not driven wisely um, doesn't know what to, to do in the case of the case of a skid, then one might ask, well, how, how do you learn how to keep the vehicle out of the ditch? How to keep uh, the heart-mind from being entrapped and controlled by the the delusion, which is the the source of suffering. Well, you know, part of the reason we go into the ditch in the first place is that we're not really looking at the road, right? There's this whole way in which human beings tend to be very checked out. And there are a lot of studies that have been done about this. There was one done in uh, two, 2010 where they took uh, more than 2,000 people, two, sci- two uh, psychologists, and um, said, okay, for this period of time now, I want you to keep track of, uh, you know, intermittently, uh, keep track of what your mind is noticing. 
and they found that uh, 46.9% of the time people were doing what's called mind wandering. Mind wandering. So this is a state that we all know very well and they define it as not focused on the outside world or the task at hand. So if you're not focused on the outside world and you're not focused on the task at hand, where the heck are you? Where the heck is it? Uh, and they, they gave the alternative place that they thought it would be, which is looking into their own thoughts. Now, that's an interesting way to describe where the mind goes when it's mind, the mind is wandering, looking into its own thoughts. I think that makes it sound a little bit too much like uh, Aristotle or something, you know? <laughs> and it's usually not like that, is it? I mean, when the mind is really wandering. And personally, I think that that estimate of, what did I say, 46.9% of the time their mind wandering is way low for an untrained mind. I think that's way low. Because first of all, these people knew that they were going to be asked at intervals what, <laughs> you know, what they were noticing, right? So they're already getting these prompts that, you know, you should notice where your mind is going and maybe a little incentive to, you know, to kind of fudge their numbers a little bit. But I think for the untrained mind, it's more like 90% of the time. 90% of the time, the, the mind is just kind of like wandering around hither and thither in a... Uh, cloud of unknowing, uh, lost in thought and emotion, and lost in delusion, just kind of like rummaging around in whatever the existing conditioning is. So this is, this is how we start out as our baseline. This is what our minds are like when we come to practice. And this study also said, well, you know, when people are mind-wandering, their, their, their minds are unhappy. And in fact, uh, mind-wandering is a bigger predictor of unhappiness than actually doing a non-preferred task. So, you know, the mind tends to be uh, more unhappy mind-wandering than it does like cleaning, you know, like a garbage can <laughs> or something like that, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? How, where it goes rummaging and, and, and what gets stirred up when the mind just follows its uh, own conditioning. So there's a, another study that was done uh, in Toronto in 2007 and reported in Psychology Today. And it was on mindfulness meditation and um, its distinctive neural mode. <coughs> So they're doing some really interesting things now, you know, looking at, uh, you know, taking people and putting them in functional MRIs and taking a look at their brains while you're, they're doing various practices and taking, look at, taking a look at the brains of people who have been, you know, practicing for a long time and seeing, you know, what's going on in there. It's, it's really kind of interesting. So... Their basic uh, description as part of this study is, well, they said, okay, there's, there's basically two different ways that the mind functions. There's this way that it functions that they call the default network. So 
That's like planning, daydreaming, and ruminating, and there's a narrative view over time. And it's activated when you think of yourself or other people. So they said, well, when you're operating this way, in this default network, which is closely related to mind-wandering, I may add, you take in information, you process it through a filter of every, what everything means, and you add your own interpretations. And it says, most of the time when you're awake, this is operating, and it operates really easily. So there's a problem with the default way of functioning, which is instead of experiencing things in a way which can correct delusion, it actually is a kind of recycling of our existing understanding of the way things are. So it's the same stuff going around and around and around. So even when we're taking in information, we're fitting it in our existing paradigm, our current structure, complete with all our current associations, our views and opinions, our beliefs and values and all the rest of it. So our conditioning reinforces itself and it doesn't correct its deviation from what is objectively true. So this is a kind of closed loop you know, we're seeing it in our culture now, speaking of the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about this now, how hermetically sealed people's perspectives are and how difficult it is for anybody to move from or open to, off their position to open to another position to even come to agreement on any kind of basic facts because everything that comes up just gets put through this uh, existing views and opinions uh, blender of whatever team you're on and it just reinforces it all. There's no ventilation in it. There's no method in it for perspective to actually be purified or reformed or opened or modified or any of it. So, you know, if, it, if what's going on is, the, uh, is to stick with our established views and re, uh, reject everything that doesn't conform to it, there's no way that error can get corrected. So this is true at the collective level, but this is also true at our level of individual operation. So we start with what we believe, and then uh, we see and accept what reinforces it. So how do you break out of this, right? This way that we kind of hover above objective reality in this conceptual world of views and opinions and uh, personal history and conditioned assumptions and um, inherited views and tribal loyalties and ideas about the world. All of which, from the description I've just given you, have of necessity significant amounts of delusion in it because they're all thought-based 
worlds, conditioned thought-based worlds. So how do you cure delusion? Well, if the problem is that we're actually out of touch with reality, that we actively misunderstand how things are on this conceptual level, and we're very tied into and bought into these uh, three wrong views that I talked about earlier, then the way to clarify that, the way to change it, the way to purify it, is actually more contact with direct reality. Direct, immediate, unmediated, sensory reality in particular. So, another way to put this is mindfulness, and in particular, mindfulness or insight meditation. Insight meditation is mindfulness meditation that has progressed to the point where the mind is starting to to see things at a deep enough level that it's starting to understand what delusions it has held. And in the process of seeing what delusions it's held, they begin to dissolve as barriers. But mindfulness meditation is an earlier step in this process where we're asking the mind to actually give the conceptual mind a break. (laughs) Let it go into semi-dormant mode for a while by attending to the other five sense doors. So the Buddha talks about there being six sense doors, right? Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then the sixth sense door which is the place where the mind gets lost. So thinking, emotions, memories, intentions, all of these other things that overlap greatly with the places where we're most apt to get lost. So it's very interesting with meditation instructions, of course, you can work directly with thought and it's a very skillful way to, uh, uh, to practice and uh, to learn to practice with thought. It's really important because that's, that's the place where the primary <laughs> delusion has its firmest uh, foothold. So it's definitely a field of practice. But it can be very, very skillful in meditation practice to learn to turn the mind in a more primary kind of way to working with non-conceptual reality with sensory receptivity in real time. So that's why you get instructions like feel the sensations of the breath or in walking meditation, allow yourself to feel the sensations of the body moving through space. Or if you're doing eating meditation, uh, you know, and you're standing in line, noticing uh, the arising of uh, 
smell at the nose door or to notice and allow hearing at the ear door when it's present. Just allowing it to be there <clears throat> as it is. <clears throat> Training the mind to connect with that directly before the cycle of, of reactivity, closely enough and in a sustained enough way before the cycle of reaction gets a foothold. Staying close to the mouth of the stream, close to sensory experience in real time. It's very purifying to the mind. When the mind starts to be able to drop ideas about what should be happening, what is happening, and actually be present and allow things to be the way that they are in this very simple way. So this uh, study uh, <clears throat> about mindfulness uh, goes on to say, in addition to the default network, there's a whole other way of experiencing things. Scientists call this way of experiencing direct experience. You experience information coming into your senses in real time, in present tense. These two circuits are inversely related. When you're lost in the narrative circuit, you're out of touch with the direct present tense experience of sensation. So think of it like a seesaw, right? And so the interpretive article in Psychology Today says, of course, the narrative circuitry can be useful for planning, goal setting, and strategizing. But you can also experience the world directly, which enables more sensory information to be perceived. I, sometimes I, I think to myself, whoever would have guessed that actually uh, knowing what you're experiencing in real time could be helpful? I mean, it is kind of amazing that, you know, it, 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 it comes, I mean, this is like groundbreaking information for our culture, right? Like there's two, there's two, two ways you can be, uh, two kinds of uh, experiential uh, palettes. And this one is really dominant, but it makes you miserable and deluded. But, you know, you can experience sensory experience directly in real time. It can be good. Fantastic. So, you know. So it says, experiencing the world through the direct experience network allows you to get closer to the reality of any event. You perceive more accurate information about events occurring around you, as well as more accurate information about these. Noticing more real-time information makes you more flexible in how you respond to the world. You also become less imprisoned by the past, your habits, expectations, or assumptions, and more able to respond to, to events as they unfold. And they, they said, people who practice noticing the narrative or default network and direct experience pass, like regular meditators, had stronger differentiation between the two. Meaning you can tell when you're in a view, an opinion, a story, and when you're just feeling your butt on the cushion. 
without any opinions about your butt and how it should be, if it's the right size, and you know, nothing. <laughs> it's just the sensations, just the thing itself. So, you know, regular meditators knew which path they were on at any time and they could switch between them more easily. Whereas people who had not practiced noticing these paths were more likely to automatically take the narrative path. So another study said, if you're high on the mindfulness scale, you're more aware of unconscious processes, have more cognitive control, and a greater ability to shape what they do and what they say than people lower on the mindfulness scale. So this all is about sati, right? This is all a secular way of exploring how the mind can start to be less imprisoned in its views and opinions and concepts and ideas and narrative and uh, judgments and assumptions uh, which circulate so freely and which are so, so dominant in most untrained minds. So with mindfulness meditation, we're essentially calling up this quality of sati and directing it in a particular way, moving into this kind of unmediated, immediate, sensory, receptive, real-time knowing, and out of reliance on the self-view and the self-narrative. We're learning to trust and connect to the real-time experience of, of what arises at the sense doors. So we're moving into direct connection with reality, We're letting go of the attempt to manipulate it. We're just seeing what's there, what's present, how it is, letting the mind rest. So we're turning the mind towards what's directly known, what seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, cognizing, knowing it in real time as events. And in this process, you come to see the impermanence of things as one sensory experience arises and passes away, another arises and passes away, followed by another and another and another. You're starting to see that truth of the impermanence of things. And we start to develop the capacity to actually notice thoughts, to be present to thoughts, but begin to have the option of relating to them as events without them being so bound up in self-view and taken so seriously. One of the things that you may notice as you start to work more directly with thoughts <laughs> is we're all, A, we're all kind of crazy. So that's part of it. Because there's crazy in there. There really is. Even in the most, you know, theoretically well-adjusted person, there's wild inconsistencies in our thoughts. I mean, they can do a U-turn just like that, right? Oh, I'm so, oh, God, this, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Oh, God, she is so much better than I am. I'm really hopeless at this. You know, it's like, it's wild. It's wild to watch all the inconsistencies, you know? So, you know, the idea that there's, you know, like one thing in there that, you know, is like doing it all. You know, people will often say something like, you know, 
why am I doing it? They'll say to me, you know, like some experience is happening. Why am I doing it? I say, well, you're actually, you're not doing it. It's happening, but you're not doing it. It's happening because of causes and conditions. It's just there. It's just happening. You take the I out of, out of things, uh, it's greatly clarifying. <laughs> a lot of dukkha goes away. So you start to see the conditioned and impermanent nature of these uh, mental phenomenon. And of course, you know, we see preferences too. Oh, we're starting to have this sensory experience. Oh, this is good. I like this. Let me see if I can keep it. How did now? How was I breathing when it was like that? Maybe I can, if I breathe that way again, you know, can I make it come back? Uh, oh. I think that was that sitting after lunch that, you know, when I went for the walk, maybe that was the thing that, you know, like made that thing happen. And, you know, maybe if I go for that same walk, it's like, so this is part of our normal human thing to try to figure out cause and effect, right? We're trying to get a grip on it. We're trying to figure out this span of control thing, which is so baffling. But we definitely see the preferences. We see the the experiences that we have that we don't like. Unpleasant sound, unpleasant sound. Make it go away, make it go away. Well, it ends when it does, right? I uh, taught a retreat recently, and at the end of it, they did haikus that, uh, well, haikuish kind of anonymous things that uh, were just kind of fun. They did it uh, anonymously, and then we read them together in a group. And I can remember one one person's haiku, or uh, little poem, was something like. Sitting there, sloth and torpor again. If it wasn't for the damn dump truck, I'd be asleep. (laughs) Right? And it's kind of like that. I mean, there can be whole sittings, there can be whole days like this. The mind gets charged. But, you know, we try to exercise control over these experiences. We try to control what's arising, you know, what's bubbling out from the mouth of the stream. And eventually we figure out that we can't do do it. That we can't do it and that we don't need to, that it self-liberates is a way of putting it. That phenomena self-liberate because they're impermanent. So whether you like it or whether you don't like it, it's going to go away. It's going to change. It's going to go away. Something else will come along. That will be the experience. And it will stand. It, it will exist for a while. It will change. It will pass away. And that's what it is. It's, <laughs> it's Emily Latella used to say, it's just one thing after another. So this allows this whole confusing, swirling mass of sensory and cognitive experiences to come into clarity, opening the possibility that we can move into wise relationship with life as a process, 
with immediate experience as a process, not taking a fixed view, not taking a, a stand in relationship to an immediate experience, understanding what is skillful, what is not skillful, and understanding that it's really skillfulness, skillfulness applied in the present moment to whatever is there that is the path to liberation. So this direct seeing for ourselves of the the three characteristics and developing skill in working with the full range of things is the process that purifies uh, the mind and leads to the wisdom that liberates. So, you know, this very simple knowing that we practice here has really deep and powerful medicine. This very simple experience of feeling your feet when you're walking. This is all part of the purification of mind by turning awareness down to this level of bare perception separate from the ideas about what it is and seeing what is it? What is it actually? And living more and more directly from that level of immediate, unmediated experience. So, so the Buddha would sometimes say about his teachings, who will untangle this tangle? Who can untangle this tangle? Untangle this tangle. Referring, of course, to this, this confusion that we have at the, the, the levels of the mind where we don't have lots of ideas and opinions and views about what's going on and what should be going on that are completely screwed up and disconnected from the truth of how things actually operate. So this is uh, the path of practice, the path of purification. And of course, as the Buddha also used to say, eke paso, come and see, come and see, come and see for yourself. There is no need to take anyone's word for it. But just come and see. Try relating uh, an opening in a sustained way to reality on this level with this kind of framing and just see where it goes, see what happens, see for yourself. So I would wish that uh, for all of you, your own experiment. And you won't have to report your mind wandering. So now we, uh, having uh, offered and uh, received or listened to, considered, absorbed uh, a a Dharma talk, uh, 